Do you believe in ghosts? Have you ever had something happen to you that you just cannot explain? Do you binge ghost hunting shows just to get the adrenaline rush of a good scare? If you delight in the paranormal and creepy real ghostly hauntings, be sure to grab yourself a copy of one of Eve S. Evans' books today. 50 terrifying ghost stories, chilling ghost stories, and real ghost stories, to name a few. Available on Amazon. Step aside, farm boys. It's time for Scheming Princesses, Unstoppable Mothers, and Magical Priestesses. They're here, they're queer, and they're ready to burn down the patriarchy. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Tasha Suri. Her latest novel is The Jasmine Throne, the first book in the Burning Kingdoms trilogy from Orbit Books, which is out today. Tasha and I discuss what makes a compelling romance, drawing widely on history and mythology, and taking the leap into writing an epic fantasy trilogy. All right, let's see what Tasha had to say. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Tasha. It's so great to have you on the podcast. It's so great to be here. Okay, so jumping right into it, I did see that your bio casually mentions that you live in a mildly haunted house, but doesn't go into any more detail. So I have to ask for the story behind that. <laughs> well, I, I kind of put that in there. And and ever since then, people have been very curious. So it, it's not so much that it's haunted as it should be. Like, it's the kind of house that is definitely made to be in a horror film. So it's a, <laughs> it's a lovely house, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's quite old and creaky and everything was wrong with it when we moved in. But the people who used to live here would sell collectible toys. So um, antique vintage toys. And they also kind of hoarded them. So when they left, they left a lot of the things that they would usually have sold in the house. And I would occasionally just find them. So I think the most creepy incident was when I went down to the basement for the first time, because of course there's a basement. It was completely dark and you could only access it by going through the garden. And I went into the basement, I put the light on and directly in front of me was a torn silk chair. On the chair was a realistic latex mask of a face. So I switched the light off. Nope, nope, nope. (laughs) I switched the light off. I think I literally said, oh, hell no put the light off, closed the door and went back upstairs and didn't go back down for a very long time. Yeah, I think I would uh, brick up the basement in that situation. Yeah, there's also like a weird void in the basement that looks like it leads to eternal darkness. I've never looked in that either. I assume that's fine and just leads to more under house stuff. But it's that kind of vibe. It's that kind of house. Yeah. So uh, when we were starting looking for houses for the first time, uh, the one thing that my wife made me promise was uh, if she ever thinks that the house is haunted, I will allow us to move. No questions asked because we're not going down like in a horror movie. (laughs) I think that's a very reasonable decision. I I comfort myself by thinking that, you know, um, ghosts are usually exercised. Is that how you call it? Like an exorcism? Um, yeah, yeah. With like religious stuff. And I assume, and usually that's Christian or Catholic and we're Hindus. So I always think that if there are ghosts, they just get really confused by all the Hindu statues in the house and they don't really know what to do. They're like, uh, do we, can we fight this? Can we not? That's a really big elephant. I, I think I'm just going to go back to the basement where I belong. 
There you go. Travel through that dark void into the neighbor's area. Yeah, exactly. They can deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I guess looking way back then, can you remember what first made you fall in love with fantasy and science fiction? Ooh, I think I've always loved it. I've loved science fiction and fantasy pretty much since I could read because I loved like fairy tales and, you know, the typical kind of Disney princess stories that a lot of kids love. But I found by pure accident um, some fantasy novels when I was trying to, I think I was trying to buy my mom a gift and I ended up in the fantasy section. I was very young. So obviously I wasn't buying this gift on my own. I think I must have had my dad with me in retrospect. And I saw, I think it was David Edding's Elenium series, because the cover of the first one has a woman on a crystal throne, and I think is in fact called the Crystal Throne. Don't quote me on that. And I thought it looked really pretty, and I wanted the book. So we bought the book, and I read the book, and it got me into fantasy, that and um, Terry Pratchett. So it was just all the stuff that I would have, that I consumed when I was younger. And of course, anime. <laughs> Yeah, anime is one of those areas that uh, I've been wanting to break into, but I'm kind of intimidated by. Uh, so, I mean, I've seen like a couple of the big ones, but that's about it. To be honest, I'm intimidated by it. I, I kind of watched certain things when I was really young and then I fell out of it. And then I went to university and there were so many people who were really into it and knew all the different animes that you should be watching. And I just thought it's too much. I can't deal with it. And I never really got into any after that. So the ones I like are all the stuff I watched as a kid, like Sailor Moon and Escaflone or Dragon Ball Z and things like that. I don't know anything about the new ones. Yeah, fair enough. I saw, I think, maybe three or four episodes of Dragon Ball Z, but I had some friends who were very intense about it and that scared me off. I was probably one of those people at one point <laughs> in my life. <laughs> I mean, I'd be a hypocrite, though, if I said that was a bad thing, because I'm definitely intense about some of my fandoms now. So what are some of your fandoms out of curiosity? Oh, oh, wow. Putting me on the spot. Um, <laughs> I guess uh, one fandom I have is I, uh, well, this is getting away from television though, but I, I definitely stand all of Claire North's books. Um, big, big fan of them. And I will chuck them at anybody I possibly can. I love her books. So I don't blame you for that. Yes. And uh, I always like to mention to people that they're the opposite of everything I would put on paper as my normal tastes, but they're just so, so good. There's something about her writing, right? That's just, it sucks you in. And she's one of those authors that I've had um, friends who are not into science fiction and fantasy. And if I say, read a Claire North book, I know they're going to enjoy it. Mm, yeah. Yep. Very uh, literary. Yes. But whatever in a that good means. Way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. That's an important qualification. But yeah. So uh, speaking of literariness, I did see that you kind of have a formal education in English and creative writing. So how would you say that's helped your career as a writer? Uh, <laughs> it's it's complicated. Um, on one level, I'm not sure that it did because everything I learned about the industry, I learned way after I finished my degree. So like at the point I got published, which was when I was 20, 28, I think time has no meaning anymore. Um, nope. Nope. And I left uni at 21. So that, that's a big gap. Um, and at university, we never learned about how publishing really works. And all of that was, um, a bit more of a shock to me or a trial by fire, but like not in a serious or worrying way when I entered the industry. What the degree focused on was a lot of stuff around 
writing short fiction and poetry and workshopping that with other people. And I wasn't really interested in short fiction. I wanted to write novels, but no tutor wants to read 30 novels by a bunch of undergrads. So we never really did that kind of work. (laughs) Um, But it also was the time when I think I learned about what really mattered to me in fiction. It was the time I started getting angry about stuff. Anger is a really good motivator for me. And I started noticing the lack of diversity in fiction and I started thinking about what I wanted to write. So it was a really good point for me to start thinking about writing. But then I also wonder whether I needed to pay 3,000 plus pounds a year to think about writing when I could have done it at home. But then again, the, the, the actual experience of meeting other writers was really good and studying English was really good. And I read things that still really matter to me now. Like I read Louise Erdrich for the first time, who I love. And I read a lot of women's fiction that I never would have actually had access to. And I learned a lot about post-colonial theory. So that's a really rambling way of saying in some ways it really didn't help and it didn't necessarily get me published. But in other ways, it was very helpful because it was an important time in my life. Would I tell anybody to get the degree? I think it's up to you. I I gather that if you do things like the um, University of East Anglia Masters in Creative Writing, that can really help you to get published and find agents. But I'm not sure about the use of that qualification to get you published if that's why you want to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And it's sounding a lot like my decision to get a master's degree in engineering that uh, does not directly translate into my actual career whatsoever. But I mean, there's still a lot of uh, very useful things that I got from that. Sounds like that's kind of not an industry specific thing. I mean, I would have thought a master's in engineering would be really useful. It depends, right? Because you you specialize in like a certain area and then whatever job you're doing is probably more general than that if you're on like the industry side of things rather than academic side of things. And so I definitely use pieces of it, but I don't know if I use uh, like all 12 classes or whatever it, I use maybe one or two. Oh, that's really interesting. So I guess a lot of qualifications are more about transferable skills and getting a stamp on a piece of paper than they necessarily are about getting you into particular jobs. Yep, absolutely. And in the US, at least, it's a very expensive stamp on a sheet of paper. <laughs> oh, trust me. it's. I don't think it's as expensive here, but it's still very expensive. It went from, I think I was paying £3,800 a year to 9000 a year, um, which is a lot more money. So I wouldn't be doing another qualification now. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's quite a bit still. So having read a few of your novels now, I think part of what makes a Tasha Suri novel a Tasha Suri novel is a compelling romance. So I just want your opinion. What do you think makes a romance great? Oh, um, easy question, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) I should have thought about this earlier. Um, I think what makes a romance great can be a lot of different things, but often it's that two characters all people, all characters uh, have particular flaws and vulnerabilities and strengths. What makes a romance great is that the strengths and flaws of those characters do interesting things together. So it's not necessarily that they're flawed and strong in complementary ways, like one of them's messy and the other one tidies up, to, to take a very superficial example, but that their their flaws make for really interesting interactions. So maybe one of them is really tough on the outside, but is actually quite a vulnerable person. And the other one appears to be vulnerable, but is actually very cunning. That makes for something quite interesting as a dynamic. 
I also think a good romance can just be something that pings people's id in a specific way. So I think often like um, in certain circles you joke about, oh, there's only one bed or, um, oh my God, they were roommates. (laughs) I guess this is fanfic circles, but that you have a particular interaction that pings on people's particular fantasies or particular desires or things they just like to read about, that can also help to make a good romance. Yeah, that's true. And I feel like the whole fanfic classifications where you can tag things with all the specific tropes, I really wish that like traditional publishing would adopt that as well. Oh, me too. I guess in a way romance kind of does that. Like if you pick up If I say this is a clean, quote unquote, Regency romance, you kind of know what you're picking up. You know, it's going to be low on heat, quote unquote, Um, and it will be in the Regency era and it will have a certain tone and it will have a certain kind of characters, etc. So you kind of get that, but it's not as specific as fanfic is. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. But yeah, so most, if not all of your novels seem like they've had a fair degree of research that went into them. Uh, So how do you normally approach your research process? So I usually buy a ton of books and then I read them in a really chaotic way. So, (laughs) (laughs) so for example, I bought a bunch of books on, on Indian history, of course, um, to write fantasy inspired by historical India, but I don't have the time, patience or interest to read the book cover to cover, especially because you may do that and then find that you've only picked up a few important pieces of information and then you're going to have to go read another book. And how much time do you really have? So I do a lot of looking at indexes and going, I want to know about um, what women wore in this particular era. I find where that is in the book. I go read it, I write it down, and then I move on. So I'm quite directed in that way. But it's also vaguely chaotic because I don't always know what I want to know until I know. So then I'll be picking up five books at once going, one of these will contain the information that I need and sort of fertile through it. The nice thing about writing fantasy, of course, is that I can just make stuff up if I can't find it, um, which is great um, because it's fantasy. Uh, It's more complicated when you write historical fiction because you know, even if you can't find the information, somebody out there will know it and they will inevitably read your book and they will tell you that you got it wrong. So that's a joy. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine that's such a joy, especially, I mean, for someone like you, you seem to not take direct historical elements. I know you'll have some characters who are influenced by historical figures and I guess at least some like certain cultures and clothing and foods, but it's not like a one-to-one analog. Oh no, no, not at all. Um, I definitely take inspiration, but I'm not. So the books of Amber, um, Empire of Sand and Realm of Ash were set in like a Mughal inspired world, but they were definitely not like in a perfect recreation of the Mughal era at all. I changed huge amounts of things to fit the story. And the Jasmine Throne is not in one particular time period. I just mashed a bunch of different things together that I like to create a a fictional fantasy world. So all of that was quite a free process. I didn't have to be very specific on the history, which is quite nice. Yeah. And that mashing a bunch of things together that you like seems to be a time-honored tradition of fantasy writers everywhere. Doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so you said, I was reading a a Reddit AMA you did a few months back, and you said that you wish you'd had more confidence and knowledge of your audience when you were just starting out as a published writer. Uh, I was just wondering, has that changed for you in your sense? Uh, I feel a lot more confident um, in what I do. I think the weird thing is that when you, some people get published and they really know who they are, not who they are as a person, you know, because people are complicated, but who they are as an author, who they are as a a kind of a a tiny mini public figure. 
they know what they're writing, they know what their audience want, they know who their audience is, and they produce that and they give that to the world. I didn't really know. So I didn't know if I was writing romance or fantasy or what kind of audience that particular kind of fiction would have. I remember kind of wondering whether fantasy was a very like male dominated space because I wasn't really sure. And it was only after getting published or in the process of getting published that I realized that my audience was quite diverse. Like it wasn't particularly just men or just women, but that they like a good romance. They like fantasy, they like diverse fantasy and that there is an audience for that. So that's a bit rambly, but essentially I didn't have confidence, one, that the audience existed or two, that I knew how to reach them. And now I feel much more secure in what I'm doing. I know what my work is, or I think I know, I might be wrong. And I know who my audience is. So I feel a lot happier with that. Yeah, that's good. And I mean, uh, for someone still, I guess, relatively early in your career so far, I think that's good to uh, get to that point early rather than, you know, 10, 15 years down the road. I mean, I'm saying that and I might just be completely wrong. Like now I've said it, like I'm I'm confident. I'm like, am I, am I, am I right about what I'm thinking? But we'll find out. Yeah. uh, You're welcome for that little uh, crisis right there. (laughs) Okay. So uh, for a very, very um, highly relevant writing question, uh, what are your favorite whiskeys? I think I hear you might be a Scotch fan. So I really like... um, what do you call them? Yeah, I do like a scotch. I like, I think they're called like Hebridean whiskeys, like the Isla whiskeys that you get from, they're very smoky. They're very peaty. They're all Scottish. I really like, uh, let's see now I should remember the name of the brand and I do not. The Ardbeg, that's it. Ardbeg produce a bunch of different kinds of whiskey and I love all of them because they're very smoky, flavored and peaty. I'm not really into the kind of like whiskeys that are not like that essentially. But recently I got a bunch of um, Japanese whiskey, which is really lovely as well. Okay. I do have a store near me that has, I think, several of those that you've mentioned. So I might have to try those. So I'm trying to remember which um, Ardbeg it was that I really liked. If you can hear me typing, that's because I'm looking it up. So I had one that I cannot pronounce, but it's spelt U-I-G-E-A-D-A-I-L. If you know how to pronounce that, um, please do. I do not. (laughs) Okay. Well, that one's really nice. So I can recommend that one. It was given to me as a gift like two years ago because it was quite expensive for me. It's not like the price of some whiskeys. And it lasted me about two years. So that one's a really good one. And the whiskey that I have from Japan is the Nikka whiskey, which I really like and got at Christmas and is now half finished. So that one's gone slightly faster, but it's also a smaller bottle. Yeah, I've definitely seen some very small bottles. Um, And I guess, okay, so for the sake of completion, I should probably also ask you what your favorite tea is as well, uh, which only seems right given that your Twitter name is Tasha Drinks Tea and your official author photo has a cup of tea in it. It's actually a coffee, but don't tell anybody. (laughs) Oh, is it? Okay, no, you see, I'm actually more of a coffee person than tea, so... I support well, see, that. I love coffees too. Um, I I can tell you my favorite coffee as well if you like. But um, oh yeah, please. Ethiopian mocha, really love it. Okay. Um, there's a really nice uh, Cornish tea and coffee company that I order from, and they do like really lovely Ethiopian coffee. So I always get that. But yeah, in terms of tea, I I'm quite dull. Usually, like I just like a straight up English breakfast, PG tips in a bag. But if I'm being fancy, 
Um, I like, hmm, probably an oolong. A Formosa oolong is one of my favorites. Okay, as someone who is not a tea connoisseur, that does sound fancy. It is. It is fancy. <laughs> I actually <laughs> bought like a fancy mug with a strainer that's all glass, so I can see my tea in it recently. So, oh, very cool. That is quite nice. I know. I think the fanciest tea I've ever had. Uh, have you seen like any of those flowering teas where you like drop it into a pitcher and it kind of blooms while it's steeping? I love those. Yeah, very cool. Uh, very fancy. And I think I've only done it once. I've had them a few time in re- times in restaurants, but of course I haven't been to a restaurant for a while. <laughs> yep. But maybe, maybe one day I'll get that again. Yeah, that sounds like a good thing to look forward to. Hang tight. We'll be right back to this episode after a quick message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Shadowed Stars, a sci-fi series with a mature flavor from author Stephen Kautz. Mysterious abductions and UFO sightings have caused the world to unite under one leader. So begins the journey into space and the rise of an intergalactic war. Shadowed Stars will be at least eight books long and takes a bold new approach to storytelling. Even numbered books follow one set of characters while odd books follow another with crossovers between. Book one, Shadowed Stars, is available for purchase now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and more. The sequel, Shadowed Stars, Reign of the Black Guard, will be released by the end of June. Find out more at shadowedstarsbooks.com. Author Stephen Kautz has created a dark and riveting tale where the very survival of the human race is no guarantee and threats lurk around every shadowed star. Well, okay. So we've been talking for long enough. Let's dive into the Jasmine throne. So do you have a pitch for us on the story? Yes. Um, it is, it's a slightly long pitch because I'm not very good at a pithy pitch. (laughs) Okay. uh, Let's go for it. The Jasmine throne is a multi POV epic fantasy set in a world inspired by the myths and epics of India about a captive vengeful princess and a maid servant with a secret past who must work together to bring down a despotic emperor and set an empire ablaze. Also, they're gay. <laughs> Only dropping that at the very end. That's one of the main selling points. <laughs> yeah, I, as I spoke, I was like, ugh, didn't mention it earlier. <laughs> uh, yeah, and my understanding is that the Jasmine Throne was actually originally intended to be part of your Books of Amba series. So it, what led to you creating this new trilogy? So um, it was kind of Orbit's fault. Um, my publisher, but (laughs) (laughs) so I pitched, um, another book in the books of Amber and I thought in my head, I didn't tell them, maybe I should have, um, I thought this will be book three and then there'll be a book four about Meher's daughter from book one. And I thought I'd quite like to figure out what's going on with one particular character from Realm of Ash and maybe follow her story a little bit further, but she can be a background character and I'll do a you know, a straight romance is the main thing and we'll follow that along. And then I started planning the story and there was just this strong lesbian energy coming off one of the characters. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this book wants to be gay. This is meant to be a lesbian love story. And I went to my agent and I said, do you think Orbit would be okay with that? You and I know, of course, that Orbit would of course be okay with that. They, They don't have any issue with queer content, but I just had never written it or published it before. And I was concerned. So my agent said, I'm sure they won't care. So 
I planned this story, which was about a captive princess falling in love and um, trying to take a throne. And I did a pitch and put it together and sent it through my agent to Orbit. And Orbit got back and went, so this doesn't feel much like the Books of Amber. This feels like it has a very different tone, which it does. It was less focused on the romance. It was less intimate in a lot of ways than the Books of Amber. There were other differences. And they said, we'd like you to try and see what this book would be if it was the start of a three-book trilogy, a big epic fantasy. And I thought, okay, let me think about that. And I thought, hey, if it's going to be a big epic fantasy trilogy, I'm going to do all the stuff that I didn't do in the Books of Amber that I really want to explore. Like There are so many other aspects of Indian and particularly Hindu mythology that I didn't use in the Books of Amber that wouldn't have fit there. And there were things I was angry about or wanted to critique that I couldn't do in the Books of Amber. So I took all of that and put that into the Jasmine Throne. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear more. What were some of those things? So I have a lot of feelings about the Hindu epics. I am Hindu and I grew up watching all the kind of like uh, slightly kitschy recreations of the epics on um, Indian television with my grandma. And those epics are long and complex and very important to a lot of people, but they have a lot of stuff about casteism and about empire and about war and about honor and about women that I wanted to explore. And a lot of the stuff that happens to women in those stories made me angry. And much like I think with any religious narrative in any culture, that stuff kind of has echoes that resonates into the larger culture. And I wanted to explore that a little bit. So, for example, in the Mahabharata, there's a woman who is shamed in front of this audience of kings and princes, and she vows vengeance. And I always thought that she was a really interesting character who had a very interesting story. And I took that as inspiration for Malini, the princess, in The Jasmine Throne. Yeah, I can uh, definitely see where that inspiration comes from. Definitely feel like Malini uh, reps that pretty well. I'm glad. I mean, the princess in the Mahabharata was married to five different men and um, at once and uh, had a very different story overall. But that was kind of the little seed that set me off. Yeah. I mean, I guess going back to that whole drawing lots of inspiration rather than following directly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I think that there've been really interesting retellings and investigations into those stories by people who are not me. Like there's one called, I think it's the Palace of Illusions. I'm going to look it up because I should stop saying things without knowing what they're called. Yeah, the Palace of Illusions, which looks into that particular character's story in a really contemporary and interesting way. So I didn't want to do that directly. I wanted to do something slightly different. I'm also curious just how much changed for you, because I think this is your first like three-part story over three novels that you're doing. You've mostly done kind of standalone in the same universe. So how much changed in the story itself? How much changed as I was writing it? Uh, Either way. I mean, I'm interested on the process level of just what was it like for you knowing that the Jasmine Throne is book one of three rather than wrapping everything up. And then I guess I know you originally had it as a standalone. So how much did that change for you? Uh, Well, the standalone that I came up with kind of had an open ending, which I think is partly why Orbit were like, hang on a second. Um, So... They asked me to rework the first one and also come up with vague plots for the second and third. And the nice thing, I guess, about reading a lot of fantasy is that it's easier to work out what you would do in a three-part trilogy because you read so many, right? 
So it wasn't that hard to rework it. Um, I might think differently when I start working on book three, of course. I might change my mind about how well I did on that. (laughs) But working out a three-part story was pretty straightforward. The actual process of writing it was interesting um, because I had a quite tight deadline, I think three or four months. Um, It might have been slightly longer. I can't remember anymore. I blanked it from my brain. And it was going to be longer and more epic. And I knew it had to be multi-POV. And I was worried that I didn't have the chops to do that um, kind of epic storytelling. And that worried me, I suppose. But I just decided that I would write it the way I wanted to write it. And then my editor could worry about that later. So, (laughs) (laughs) which she did. So I wrote all the different points of view in a kind of chaotic way, just the one I wanted to write at the point in the story I reached and had lots of little points of view come in, a few of which are still there and just told the story. And actually I think that worked pretty well. It had to go through some serious editing, but I think most books do. And in the end I found out I could write a multi POV epic fantasy, which was quite nice. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely way too early to be making that decision, I feel like, for you. But is that where you see the direction of your writing going from now, now that you've done it? Or do you think you prefer the kind of standalone? I really don't know. I really don't know. I think I might feel differently by the time I reach book three <laughs> again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think there are benefits and drawbacks to both. So with a standalone, you kind of have to make, well, you have to make that a complete story in of itself, of course, which is really nice. and. I think with something more epic and three-part, it's nice to have a bigger sandbox to play in, but I do wonder what it feels like to write the book one in a trilogy and that not to sell well or not to have a lot of, not to have a good reception and then to have to write two more books. So I obviously don't know at this point how people will react to the Jasmine throne. I hope positively, but I've, you know, spoken to authors who've written longer series, who've been contracted for them and didn't get the reception they hoped or fell out of love with the series for some reason when they were working on it. And then they're stuck. And I can see that there's a lot more freedom in writing a one-shot novel than there is in writing a trilogy. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to see. Maybe I'll finish three books and I'll be like, no, I'm going to write a standalone. I need freedom. Or maybe I'll be like, no, five books. That's what I really need. But we'll have to see. I mean, why not go all the way, right? 14 books. Oh, yeah, definitely. That sounds great. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you have said before that uh, the Jasmine Throne is even less kind of directly drawing from history when compared to the books of Amba. So I'm curious, like, if you approach that differently or what specific little bits of mythology and history you worked into this book. I know you talked about the inspiration for Malini, but I'm curious about what others are there. So the funny thing is when I researched um, the books of Amber, I read like a lot of different random things. As I've told you, my, my process was fairly chaotic and a lot of that stuff never ended up in the books. So in a way I didn't have to necessarily research as much because I had lots of random pieces of information in my head already. Thinking about what inspired me, I think I did use some of the Mughal imperial structure, which was kind of cheating, I suppose, but was quite helpful. I used stuff from the Delhi Sultanate. I looked at things like the the Chola Empire, the Gupta Empire. I looked at stuff to do with Shivaji, who was like a rebel against the Mughals. Um, a lot of stuff from mythology I didn't have to research because I knew it because I grew up with it. So in terms of things that inspired me around like 
women's roles and stories, that stuff was already in my head. So I guess it was a less intensive research process. I have found that um, for the sequel of The Jasmine Throne, I've had to do a lot more research of war and military stuff, which has been a nightmare. And I blame myself entirely. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Is that more into like uh, basic strategy and logistics and things like that? Or is it more on the historical angle? So... um, I accept that I'm not a good military strategist. That's fine. Not everybody has to be. So it was more kind of reading about historical battles that took place and um, mythic battles as well. Because one of the biggest events that I don't want to spoiler in the Jasmine Throne was inspired by a particular incident that happens in the Mahabharat. I think it's called the Palace of Lack. And I wanted to use that kind of inspiration in the second book as well. So I had to do a little bit of research into things like that too. Okay. That's fascinating. I'd love to see like an in-depth article or something from you sometime on like all of these little tidbits, like Easter eggs that you've worked in. Oh, maybe one day. But the problem is I've forgotten a lot of them. Like even now I'm sitting here (laughs) going, what what did I use? What did I use? And I don't know anymore. I know I did do like a, um, I riffed on Terry Pratchett at one point, which I don't think anyone's noticed, but. Oh, now I'm trying to think where that would have been. I'm not nearly familiar enough with Pratchett though. I've only read a handful of his books. I think he's got, I think it was something to do with the turtle moves, like it's turtles all the way down. And I did something similar to that, but but don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that though. And I'm also kind of a sucker for magical diseases and you've written a properly terrifying one with the rot. So how did that particular monstrosity come about? Oh, well, God, do I even remember how that came around? I just think... God, do you know, I don't know. I don't know how I came up with the rot. I think that bodies are weird. And you know, when you, this is a bit gross, but you know, when you get a cut or something and you have to watch it heal up and it's almost unnatural how it looks. Right. Like the skin goes so strange and sometimes you're like, oh, it kind of looks like bark. I think that probably had some influence on me. And it's interesting as well. And this is also morbid how much flowers and perfumes are involved in death. So I've been to funerals in my life, as as many people have. And, you know, there's a lot of throwing petals and garlands and using sort of perfume and ghee to mask scents um, before cremation. This is in a Hindu context. And I think it just got me thinking about bodies and flowers and growth and things like that. So it's not um, any kind of direct thing that inspired me. But it's just general creepitude that lived in my brain somewhere that influenced me. Yeah, no, and it's definitely creepy too, because I normally don't think of plants and flowers and vines and bark and all of that as really ominous, uh, but it definitely takes on a new light. I think flowers are super ominous. Like, um, I love botanical art. I don't know anything about nature, just FYI, but I do love looking at botanical art. And it's really interesting to look at dissections of flowers and fruit because they look so strange. When you actually look at something closely, it's almost like flesh. And I used to work as a librarian and I worked in a medical library and we had a book from the Wellcome Trust. This is going into non-writing related things, I realise, but we had a book from the Wellcome Trust called The Sick Rose, which contained a bunch of anatomical art from history of people who were sick or dying or had horrible diseases. And a lot of that art is a lot like botanical art, but it's off people. And that can be quite dizzying. Like you'll look at it and you'll just feel really sweaty and weird because it's almost unnatural, even though it's perfectly natural, it's literally science. And I guess, yeah, everything's creepy. 
if you look at it closely enough. <laughs> that sounds like a fascinating yet terrifying book. And I feel like you have uh, a decent background there for a horror writer if you ever wanted to switch genres. Oh, no, I'm, I can't watch horror films. I'm absolutely terrified of horror. Yeah, I, I'm kind of the same way. Uh, I think it's the jump scares that get me. Jump scares and gore. Not a fan of either one. Yeah, I really don't like jump scares. I think I could cope with gore, though I wouldn't be a fan of it. I could just cope with it. But the, the whole waiting for something to happen, I'm really not a fan of. Hard agree. But yeah, okay, so in a past interview, you said that you intentionally wrote Melanie and Priya to be less likable women than some of your previous protagonists. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious just what went into that decision. So at the time I was writing it, I, I was thinking about what kind of romances I like to read and what I want from romance. And I kind of joked about this before, but in a straight romance, I think I really want to see people talk about consent and communicate and be vulnerable with each other. Because I think that I've read plenty of romances. And again, this is not tarnishing all of romance um, with the same brush, but I read some um, where that just doesn't happen and that recreate kind of like nasty patriarchal dynamics. So I like to work away from that. But what I hadn't read as much in sort of lesbian or sapphic romances were women just being absolute trash to themselves and to each other. <laughs> and I wanted to read more of that. I always feel like I'm kind of reacting against something. So I think that I, in straight romances, I'm reacting against some kind of toxic patriarchy thing that I don't want to deal with. But then I think with a lot of sapphic fiction and a lot of queer fiction, there's a kind of pressure to tell stories that are good representation or that are very pure by some standard of purity that somebody came up with somewhere so that they say something good about us to someone else. I don't want to say something good about us to someone else. I want to read a romance that taps into the id the same way that any romance should. I want to read trash and I want to write it. But to put that in a more literary way, I want to read about women who are allowed to be monstrous and do monstrous things and also have love and have a kind of complicated, difficult love that you would have if you were trying to make difficult decisions and preserve your own power in a world where as a woman, you're not meant to make difficult decisions or preserve your own power. You're meant to sacrifice. So yeah, I on that basis, I wanted them to be difficult, complicated, often monstered or consciously monstrous women who still fall in love and have a complicated relationship. And I think I've seen uh, you advertising a bit as like the morally gray lesbians angle. And uh, I have to say, I really like this kind of morally gray because I feel like when I first learned of that term, it was almost exclusively like this one specific anti-hero, like dark and gritty type. Oh yeah, I know what you mean. Like, oh, I kill because I must or like, I, I want power or something. I don't know, but... Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. I talked to C.L. Clark at one point in an interview and we talked about women and how they're depicted in fiction. Like, for example, you don't get a lot of butch women in fiction. But I also think that you very rarely get the the feminine woman who is not vilified for doing... Well, you know, like Cersei Lannister, right? That kind of figure getting to be the heroine of a book. And I wanted to do that. So that's what Melanie is. Yeah. All right. Melanie, I'll think of as Cersei Lannister then. I mean, there's, there's less incest, so that's good. <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't want it. I, I, oh, why did I say that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> less incest is definitely an interesting description. <laughs> significantly less incest. One might even say no incest. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, I've also, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but I've heard you say that you like to use fanfic tropes in your writing. So how many of these made it into the Jasmine throne? I mean, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of hurt comfort, which I think is a really good fanfic trope. Um, it's enemies to lovers, I guess, or enemies to reluctant allies to lovers. There's a lot of like, let me just yearn over you while washing your hair. Daggers. I think these are all fanfic tropes. I'm, I'm sticking with that. And, okay. <laughs> yeah. And there's only one bed, except one of them sleeps on the floor. So that kind of defeats the whole, there's only one bed thing. Yeah. So there's a fair few fanfic tropes, I'd say. Yeah. And I, I don't know if this classifies as a trope, but I did definitely recognize the O. Okay. Yeah. That is a trope, I would say. Um, <laughs> I can't believe I got away with that, but I'm very pleased that I did. Yeah. And I'm not even particularly familiar with fanfic, but I still definitely noticed that. I think that O is very eloquent. It is a it is a good trope, and I'm glad that I brought it into a published novel. It says a lot with just two letters. It really does. Okay, so this is where I'd usually ask you to tell us about any upcoming projects you have, but I do know in particular there's a Wuthering Heights remix slash reclamation that you're working on, so I'd love to hear more about that. Yes, there is. And I'm writing it at the moment, so hopefully it will be good. So um, Firewall and Friends are doing a YA remix series. So a bunch of different authors are taking classic novels and remixing them into new stories with a more diverse cast, usually. I am doing Wuthering Heights, which I love. It's a book I adore. But it's interesting that Wuthering Heights does a kind of typical gothic fiction thing where it brings in the outsider, the cuckoo in the nest, who is ambiguously ethnic and ruins everything by being there. And I wanted to make Heathcliff's, that, that's the character, um, Heathcliff's race explicit and also explore, I guess, um, empire, the British empire at the end of the 1700s and the way that intersected with India in a YA novel. So that's what I've been doing. I've remixed Wuthering Heights so that Heathcliff is the son of a Lascar sailor, so a South Asian sailor, and Kathy is actually half Indian. In, but in many ways, it's still very similar to the original book. And I've tried to draw very concretely on real history as much as possible to show that, I guess, Britain was pretty diverse, but also kind of awful in a lot of ways. That sounds like a good description of Britain. And I mean, yeah. not that I have a leg to stand on as an American. I mean, we can all be terrible together, I guess. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I've seen uh, some of your process on Twitter about like your research process for the novel. Uh, I know you were struggling to find pictures of what 18th century laborers would have worn not too long ago. Yeah, it's been a lot of, um, it's been an interesting insight into inequality of information. So if I was still a librarian, let's say, if I still had access to a university collection, though of course I would not use it for my personal gain, I would be able to access a huge number of academic research papers about history. And some of those might include papers about Lascars or about um, working class Britain in the 18th century. When you don't have access to an academic collection like that, a lot of that information is just inaccessible because you either have to get it illegally or it's just not available or you have to pay like 80 quid for it, which I'm not going to do because I'm not made of money and I'm cheap. So it's interesting trying to write in particular a story about working class people at the end of the 1700s, many of whom are not white. So I might find something like, I found a reference saying that there was a large Chinese community in Liverpool around the time that I'm writing a story set in Liverpool. I was like, that's great. Where do they live? Can't find out where they live. 
I know where the communities moved to in the 19th century, but I don't know where they existed in the 1700s. How big was the community? I have no idea. I found a reference, only one reference, one article talking about the fact that Lascars had a language, which makes sense because they came from across um, South Asia and Southeast Asia and from the Middle East, that they would come up with a shared language. But the only references I could find to it were in this one particular article. So it's stuff like that, where you're just finding little bits of information, but there are huge gaps. And I gather that the British Empire and the East India Company didn't necessarily keep records of certain pieces of information. And um, that makes things really difficult. So I've had to make a number of assumptions about history that I wouldn't have to make if I were writing about lords and ladies in the Regency, because we have a lot of information about that. It's all written down. That was a bit of a rant, but... Yeah. No, I love that. That's that's such a fascinating and informative rant. That's the best kind. Oh, thank you. I mean, I know there's someone out there who has this information, but I don't necessarily have access to them. And also the book's due in May, so I don't have time to find them. And all of that makes it a little bit more complicated. Are there any specific books or anything that you did find some useful information in that you can recommend if people are maybe interested in learning more about this? Uh, yes. And I think I have two in front of me. So let me have a look. Uh... I found a really cool book that I've really enjoyed called The Liverpool Underworld, Crime in the City, 1750 to 1900. It's mostly about um, 19th century Liverpool, um, but it's still very interesting. And it talks a lot about things like Navy press gangs, which I think is fascinating that the Navy would just be like, we're just going to kidnap you to work on Navy ships because that's a normal thing to do. Also, a book that just came out recently by Ian Mortimer is The Time Traveller's Guide to Regency Britain which is mostly about later than the period that I'm working on, but is also about the Regency and is very interesting. So both of those are really good books. And there's also a book by, I've forgotten the name of the author, but it's called Ayers, Lascars and Slaves. And it's about the history of South Asians in Britain. And I'm going to look up the name now. Um, Ayers, Lascars and Princes, sorry. And it's um, by Rosina Visram. And that's a really good book and talks all about the the history of um, South Asians in Britain. And she did a lot of research into archives that I don't think anybody else has really done. Um, so that's a really cool book. Um, of course, all of them contain huge amounts of racism. So, you know, you just have to kind of go with that. Yeah, I guess that's uh, an unfortunate side effect of researching particular time periods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I mean, you said the book is due in May. Uh, does it have a working title yet? It has a title, but I can't tell you what it is yet or I'll get in trouble. Okay, fair so, enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess outside of research books, are there any just books for fun that you've read lately and you've enjoyed? Um, I've read The Wolf in the Woodswind by Ava Reed, And I thought that was so beautiful. Like it's that perfect combination of let's critique ethno-nationalism and man who tortured kneeling sexy. So it, it kind of meets all my interests in one book. She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan, which is like, again, really beautiful historical fiction with tortured man kneeling. So there might yes. be a theme. <laughs> I'm actually reading that one right now. So yeah, highly what enjoying it. Oh, I love it. I love it. So good, right? I just, it really yeah. is. I just, when I read it, I was like, I'm offended by how good this book is. Like, what am I meant <laughs> to do now? Yeah, no, I, I'm a big fan so far. I think, is there any other books that I've read recently that I've really loved? I think I think those are the two I'm going to go with for now. I read Honey Girl by Morgan Rogers, but that's not fantasy or science fiction. It's just contemporary, but it's beautifully written. And I really enjoyed that one as well. 
I've actually heard about that recently. I'm trying to think about where I heard that. I think maybe one of my co-bloggers. Actually, probably indirectly from you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I, uh, one of the ways I like to close out these interviews is just asking, what's one thing you're excited about right now? Uh, one thing I'm excited about right now... Um... I think the Ignite Awards were just announced and I was really excited about their picks. It was really nice to see such like a cool list of authors getting recognition. Is that what you meant? Because <laughs> that's what's exciting me. Oh, and oh, I, I mean, Shadow sure, absolutely well. anything. And um, yes, yeah. Loved that. Had such a good time watching that. Everyone wore great coats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they did. And um, it was nice seeing like the Six of Crows cast come to life. So yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah, I'm six episodes in, I believe. So hopefully I'll be able to finish that in the next couple of days. It's really annoying that like, I'm, I imagine if there is a series two, and I hope there will be, it's going to be really delayed because of COVID. I mean, that's not the most annoying thing about COVID, but it's one of the things that's irritating me. Yes, so many excellent uh, TV shows that are being delayed. I guess we'll get loads of TV shows at some point, though, probably when we're all outside. Yeah, 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 that seems to be the way it'll work. I am looking mm. forward to uh, more time outside in public. Oh yeah, that'll be great. I'm, I'm, I'm excited that excited slash nervous that lockdown has kind of eased where I am. Um, so bookshops are open, so I can go to bookshops, which has been really nice. Yeah, no, that is good. That is one of the things I'm most looking forward to. Uh, I guess what I'm excited about: bookshops and coffee shops. Yes, yes, coffee shops. I remember those. <laughs> back in the day back in the in before the times <laughs> okay then tasha that's all i have for you this has been a delightful conversation thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you thank you for letting me ramble at you i had a really good time you can find tasha surrey on twitter as tasha drinks tea at her newsletter tashasurrey.substack.com or at her website tashasurrey.com the Jasmine Throne is one of my favorite reads this year, and it's out today. You don't want to miss this start to an epic new fantasy series. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com, or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon, or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.